Exodus 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the, by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Excerpts from Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Excerpts from John 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate at your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, then they said to him, what, was, what must we do to be going, doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has, he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna and the, in the wilderness, and it is written, He gave them bread from the heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give the, for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Calvary. And uh, hope you are doing all right this morning. Hope you had a good week uh, this past week. I want to welcome, uh, beyond our normally normal uh, Calvary folks, I want to welcome also some uh, friends who have found uh, your way to the live stream. Perhaps you're not a regular attender of Calvary. Glad uh, to have you joining us. Perhaps you're a friend or a neighbor of someone uh, that joins from Calvary. I also um, heard that we have some people listening in from Europe. And uh, that's great too. Uh, I was going to, I was saying to, uh, meant to say to those of you that are joining locally, I'd love to meet you if I haven't met you yet. If you're joining from Europe, I don't suppose I'll probably be meeting you anytime soon, but uh, very glad that you are here too. In any case, we've been working our way through our sermon series this year, All Things New the story of the Bible, and the healing of the world. And we began in January at the beginning of the Bible, starting with Genesis, and then have been working our way along ever since, following this overarching story of the Bible. And last week, we got our way up to the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And we looked at when God brings his people out of the land of, of Egypt where they were enslaved. And we saw, uh, we drew a connection between that moment in Israel's history and then Easter, of course, drawing the connection between how the Red Sea crossing prefigured the sacrament of baptism. So this week's sermon is a little bit of a kind of a part two or a, a, a follow-up to last week's sermon. Uh, my daughter, Ella, this past week, she asked me what I was going to be preaching on. And I said, well, Last week, we saw how the Red Sea crossing prefigured the sacrament of baptism. So can you guess what the manna from heaven or the bread from heaven prefigures? And she immediately said, communion. And I said, you're right. And she said, bam, I don't need to listen to your fancy sermon. So I don't know. Ella doesn't need to listen to this fancy sermon, but maybe some of you do this morning. And she was exactly right, is that the bread from heaven that we just had read for us from Exodus 16 and 17 to include also the water from the rock, 
that the New Testament, under the Apostle Paul, he picks these up and he sees these as prefigurings of the sacraments of baptism and communion. I read this passage last week. I'm going to read it just briefly again for us here this week. But 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul makes this connection, verses 1 through 4, he says this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our, for, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he's referencing this, this uh, crossing through the Red Sea. And then he says this, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So he's talking about the bread from heaven. He's talking about this water from the rock. And he says the, the, they drank from the same spiritual rock and followed, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so he is connecting the sacraments of the church with baptism and communion back to Israel's salvation story of crossing through the Red Sea and then the bread from heaven in the wilderness. So Ella was right. There is this connection between the manna from heaven and communion. I want to say a quick word here just about uh, the relationship between baptism and communion as we get started looking at communion uh, this morning. might be helpful for us. Baptism, as I pointed out last week, is the sacrament of for starting the Christian life. Right? It signifies our dying and rising with Christ, and it points to our ultimate hope of resurrection from the dead. It tells us how we have been born again to new life. So it's the sacrament for starting the Christian life. Communion, though, is the sacrament for living the Christian life. It's something that's repeated over and over again. So baptism, it just you just get baptized once at the beginning of the Christian life, just like you get born once at the beginning of your life. But communion has the metaphor or the sign of eating. It's for the ongoing living of the Christian life. It signifies our ongoing need of and participation in the sustaining grace of God. So it tells us how we are sustained in the new life of baptism. So new life kind of comes to us, as it were, and it's signified in the sacrament of baptism. And then communion signifies the sustaining of this life all throughout our life. Which is why, as an aside, it's typical in the Christian tradition that baptism precedes communion. You enter into the sacrament, as it were, of baptism, and then from there you then partake of the sacrament of communion. In any case, it's going to be helpful for you to know that communion is the sacrament that signifies our ongoing living out of the Christian life as we work uh, through today's sermon. All right, so I want to point out from this text and then also from what we read in John chapter 6, three, ex or three truths about the connection between communion and the grace of God. So three truths about the, com the connection between communion and the grace of God. The first two truths we're going to find in the Exodus story itself, the first communion, as it were, in the wilderness. And then the third truth we're going to draw from, Je from Jesus' words in John chapter 6, where Jesus picks up the Exodus story. He picks up Exodus 16 and 17, and he develops it further and gives more insight. So without further ado, let's jump into uh, Exodus 16 and 17. And here's our first thing I want us to see about communion, the first truth about communion and the grace of God in Exodus 16 and 17. Communion is a reminder that God's grace is unmerited. 
Communion is a reminder that God's grace is unmerited. Let me provide a brief recap of Israel's story up to this point. The Lord had seen the suffering of Israel. They were down as a nation in Egypt. They were enslaved, so God came down to save them. He atoned for them by the blood of the Passover lamb. He redeemed them from slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. And now, in Exodus 16 and 17, they are in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. That's where we pick up the story. Everything has been looking good up through chapter 15, but then we get to 16. And no sooner have they started their journey toward the promised land when they begin to despair for lack of food. So they say in 16.3, you can see uh, their despair in action. They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. So thinking back on their time in slavery in Egypt, and they're like, oh, how much better our lives were back when we were slaves. Like, oh, that we had just, we had just you know, lived back in the time of Egypt or that we had died while we were there. Right? The Israelites have just been miraculously delivered from slavery out of the land of Egypt with great signs and wonders. I mean, the Red Sea crossing isn't the only thing that we've seen, right? I mean, all the plagues that came before that, that broke uh, Pharaoh's will, that released them out of the land. And now here they are at the first sign of difficulty after they've crossed over the Red Sea and they are in despair which I think, frankly, is pretty typical. You know, I mean, this is so much a metaphor for not only the, <laughs> the story of Israel, but also the story of our lives as well. It's all the stuff in the past, sometimes we just forget so quickly about how God has delivered us, and we begin to despair at the first sign of trouble. It's as though God is only as good as his last miracle. You know, I mean, sometimes I felt, I used to feel like this when I was a beginning preacher, right? I'd preach a good sermon and people would be like, oh, that's a great sermon. And then I would think, you know, oh, I got to do it again. I got to do it again. If I don't do it again, people are going to stop thinking I'm a good preacher, right? At some point you have to just let go of all that, right? But the point is that God is as good as his last miracle. He is better than his last miracle. He continues on doing miracles. If I were God at this point, I probably would have had a thing or two to say to the Israelites about their faithless attitude. But, but then we read what God does. He doesn't bring condemnation. He brings relief. He miraculously rains bread down from heaven. So this miraculous bread, it appears in the morning with the dew. Verse 14 describes the bread as a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, on the ground. So it's hard to kind of get a picture exactly of like what that is and why you would want to eat it, right? But here this fine flake-like thing appears like frost or like dew on the ground. And they would go out and they would collect all this and they would eat this as their bread. But it's not just hard to make sense of for us. It was apparently pretty hard for them to make sense of as well. They didn't know exactly what it was either which is where we get the term manna, manna from heaven, right? Because the term manna in Hebrew means what? Actually, it means what is it, right? So they would walk out, they would see the stuff on the ground, they'd be like, what? And that's what they named it, what? Go out and get the what? Bring it in, you know, I mean, so here it is. So that's what they call it, manna, what? So the manna, this miraculous bread from heaven, came down every morning with the dew, 
and supplied their need for food. But their need for food wasn't the only problem they had in the wilderness. Water also was scarce. And that gets us into this situation in chapter 17. No sooner had God taken care of their hunger when they become aware of the fact that they're running short on water and they again begin to despair. So God's delivered them from the Red Sea, from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. He's given them miraculous provision of bread from heaven every morning. And now here we are again at the first sign of difficulty after all of these provisions, no water, and they begin to despair. Look what they say here in 17.3. Why did you bring, they say this to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It's another faithless response from the people of Israel. And this, after God has not only delivered them from Egypt, but is bringing bread from heaven. So Moses turns to God, and God tells Moses to take his staff and to strike a rock, and that the water will come out of the rock. So Moses does, and sure enough, water does. And the remarkable thing here in both of these stories, the bread coming down out of heaven, the water coming out out of the rock, the miraculous food, the miraculous drink, is not just that God supplied it for 40 years, all throughout the wanderings of Israel through the wilderness, but that God continued to, dis- to supply it despite Israel's unfaithfulness. If you know anything about the story of Israel in the wilderness, you know that the wilderness years were not their best years, right? It's kind of like when you like have all, you look through the photo album and you go back to your junior high pictures and you're like, those weren't my best years, right? Well, that's like the wilderness years for the nation of Israel. These were not their best years. I mean, there is, you read through the book of Exodus and then on into Numbers and And there is quite a bit of uh, things that Israel uh, does not do well. Rebellion, faithlessness, recalcitrance, rebellion against Moses, rebellion against God, on and on it goes. And yet through it all, all throughout this season in the wilderness, God continued to extend grace. He continued to provide the bread and the drink of this first communion. He continued to supply their needs every day. God's supply of grace wasn't connected to their obedience or even their faith. When they were faithful and obedient, which wasn't very often during this season, God supplied their needs. When they were full of doubt and disobedience, which was very often, God continued to supply their needs. So here's the truth I want us to see about communion And the grace of God, this first truth, communion is a reminder that God's grace is unmerited. So we're not taking communion today because we can't. I mentioned this uh, a number of weeks ago, but we will uh, take a communion when we all come back together and can commune together with each other uh, and uh, as one body with the Lord. But we're not taking communion today, but communion does have a message to proclaim, as it were. When we gather at the communion table, to receive the great sign of God's grace, we are invited by God to remember the richness and freeness of His grace. Communion is our ongoing reminder that how we began the Christian life is how we continue in the Christian life. 
we began the Christian life by freely accepting the unmerited grace of God. And we continue on in the Christian life by freely accepting the unmerited grace of God. You don't have to be worthy for the grace of communion. You don't have to be free of every doubt. You just have to belong to the covenant family. Now, some of my discerning church-going listeners are thinking, ah, but what about 1 Corinthians 11? Doesn't the Apostle Paul talk in 1 Corinthians 11 about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way? You are correct about that. Uh, briefly on that, there, in that passage, Paul critiques some of the Corinthians who are eating the Supper, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner. I would point out there, though, that it's the, the manner of eating that is unworthy, not the people that are unworthy, as Paul's concerned. The problem in 1 Corinthians 11 was that rich Corinthians were excluding some of the poor Corinthians from the Lord's Supper. That's why Paul will go on to say that when you eat the supper, you have to eat it while considering or remembering the body. He doesn't mean the body of Christ up in heaven. He means the body of Christ that we gather together with. If anything, the message of 1 Corinthians 11 is in support of what I'm saying here about the, un, uh, about the nature of communion. The only way to become unworthy of communion from 1 Corinthians 11 is if you think that some are more worthy than others to participate. In other words, if you think that there is a worthiness that makes you more fit for communion than others, that, if anything, is what makes you unworthy of communion. The lesson from the first communion in the wilderness and then all throughout the 40 years is that if you've been baptized in the Red Sea, as it were, if you belong to the family of God, the grace of, commun of the communion table is for you, regardless of whether you merit it or not. And of course, that's just the point of communion. You don't merit God's grace. That's what it, God's grace is. It's an unmerited favor. None of us merit God's grace. We didn't merit God's grace at the beginning of the Christian life, and we don't merit God's grace through the continuation of the Christian life. Maybe the unmerited nature of grace is something that you need to be reminded of this morning. Maybe you've been coming up short lately. You started out the Christian life with zeal and earnestness, and you intended to live a life that has been honoring to God, but you look at how you've been living, choices that you've made or attitudes that you've had or relationships you haven't done well, and you see how you're coming up short and you're tempted to think that you've put yourself outside of God's grace. Or maybe I know some of you struggle with doubts. I've struggled with doubts at various points in my life. And maybe you let your doubts kind of keep you back, as it were, from the grace of communion. Let me ask, let me encourage you to lay aside the presumption that you have to somehow merit or be worthy of God's grace. Communion is the reminder that God's provision of grace is for you. Maybe especially for you. If you stand in need of God's grace, then God's grace stands ready to meet you. And it's when we are most aware of our need for God's grace that we are most uh, 
And when we are most aware of our need for grace, that we are, are most able to receive it. What a travesty it is or would be for you to think of yourself as unworthy of grace and therefore not reach out your hand to receive God's gift. That's what grace is for. Sometimes I think what we do with our sin is we, we want to retreat back from God. We're going to go kind of clean ourselves up and then we'll come back and we've got ourselves put together. But God's grace is what cleans us up. God's grace is what ministers to us in the midst of our brokenness and our sin. So don't retreat back from God because things aren't as they should be. Of course they are not as they should be. That's why you need the grace of God in your life. Communion is the great sign that we come to over and over again throughout our Christian life that reminds us that we come to him for grace in the midst of the journey of this life through the wilderness. You don't need to be at the end of the journey in order to partake of communion. You just need to be on your way along the journey. So the first thing communion reminds us is that God's grace is unmerited. The second thing that communion reminds us about this morning is that God's grace is necessary for all of life. God's grace is necessary for all of life. Sometimes I think we can fall into the, the, the subtle air of thinking that God's grace exists only for sin. That's what grace is for. Grace is God's response to sin, as though if we hadn't sinned, then we wouldn't need any grace. But the story of Israel's first communion says the opposite of that. The Israelites needed God's provision in the wilderness simply because they were creatures, quite apart from the fact that they were sinners. That first communion in the wilderness wasn't God's response to their sin. It wasn't as though God looked down upon their sin and said, okay, I'm going to have to somehow take care of the fact that they're sinners, right? He looked down upon their need and he reached in with his grace and supplied their need, which is to say that we were in need of God's provision because we are human beings, not because we are human sinners. Adam and Eve in their primeval perfection, they too stood in need of God's daily provision. That's why God put Adam and Eve in a garden with fruit trees and streams of water. He supplied all of Adam and Eve's needs prior to their sin, precisely because they had needs prior to their sin. It wasn't uh, it wasn't Adam and Eve's sin or Israel's sin that made them needy. It was their existence as creatures that made them needy. And we too need, no less, our daily bread. We too need God's sustaining grace every day of our lives, even apart from our sin. Every time we come to the communion table, we are being reminded that we are creatures standing in need of God's provision and that God supplies that provision. Sometimes we can too narrowly think of communion as God's provision in light of our sin, as though grace is what we need only because we've fallen short of God's ideal and that what communion is, is communion is a time to gather together and everyone think about their sin and how they've fallen short and then in thinking about their sin, we can then be reminded that God's grace is unmerited. Well, there's truth in that. 
right? But we're not just coming together at the communion table to be reminded of our sin, and that's the only reason we need God's grace. We're coming together at the communion table to be reminded that we need God's grace for the whole of our lives, independent of our sin. It's not as though if you've had a really good week, you don't really need communion that much, right? You only need communion when you've really been messing up. No, we need communion our whole lives because communion is the great statement, the great sign about how we always need the life of God. Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, refers in John 6 to his body as, and his blood as the life of the world. Just like the Israelites, we will always eternally need the life that God supplies even after God has finished his redemptive work. It's not as though once God has completely perfected us, he has completely finished his work in our life, that we will no longer need the life of the world. We will always need God's grace, not always to heal us from our sin. Someday the grace of God will have healed us fully from our sin, but we will always need God's grace to meet our creaturely needs. So maybe that's a needed reminder for you this morning. Perhaps you've only tended to think about your need of God's grace with respect to your failures and your spiritual life. But with the rest of your life, you've tended to think, ah, I've got this covered. And so you've unwittingly compartmentalized your life. The spiritual side, the religious side, the ethical side of your life, you consciously acknowledge your need of God's grace in that area of your life. But the natural side of your life what perhaps you sometimes subconsciously think of as your real life, you think that you need only your own ingenuity, resourcefulness, and perhaps a bit of luck. And when you think about God's interaction in that area of your life at all, if you do, you think about having some, perhaps some divine blessing. But you certainly don't need divine grace. It's not as though you're as dependent upon God for all the natural stuff as you are for the spiritual stuff. But that's the wrong way of thinking. We are as dependent upon God for the natural aspects of our lives as we are for the spiritual aspects of our lives. We need God's grace for the whole of our lives. We need God's grace in order, as Paul says, to live and to move and to have our being. All of life is a gift that God gives us. That's what grace is. It's the gift of life, the life of the world. That is the grace that God gives to us. All of life then, as a gift, as a grace, is to be received with gratitude, with humility, and with trust. So where in your life do you need communion's reminder that God's grace is necessary and provides what is needed for all areas of life? Where do you need to stop perhaps compartmentalizing your life? Where do you need to cease striving in your own strength as though certain parts of your life were up to you? Let communion remind you that God's grace extends to the whole of your life. So the first thing communion reminds us is that God's grace is unmerited. The second thing communion reminds us is that God's grace is necessary for all of life. And the third thing, the final thing that communion reminds us about this morning is perhaps maybe the most important, that God's grace is a person. 
And for that, we turn to John chapter 6. Jesus picks up the story of Israel in the wilderness with the bread from heaven, the miraculous provision of God under the prophet Moses, and he develops it further and makes a point about himself and about the personal nature of grace. To give you a bit of context of what's going on in John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the crowd of 5,000. This is one of his most famous miracles. It's the only miracle, actually, that is uh, written in all four Gospels. So this is the only miracle all four Gospels talk about. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and you would think that everyone would be very impressed, and in many ways they were quite impressed. But in another respect, there were some diehard uh, religious folks that were very dedicated to Moses who weren't as impressed as you might think. And so they say to Jesus, uh, this was all you know, well and good, what you've done here, Jesus, with the 5,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, but show us a sign of your true greatness. Prove to us that you are better than Moses. You just fed 5,000 here, which was great, but, but our father Moses, he fed the entire nation of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. So look at Jesus' answer here in 6, 32 through 33. He says this to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the whole world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Look what Jesus is saying here in this passage. He's saying, My Father gives the true bread that is the life for the whole world. Your first heir, Jesus is saying, is that you think that the bread came from Moses. Moses wasn't the one that gave bread to all the people in the wilderness. That came from my father. Your second error is that you thought that bread for Israel was sufficient. I come to give bread to the entire world. And the people are like, okay, okay, that sounds pretty good. Give us some of this bread. But they're not yet getting Jesus's point. He's not just another prophet like Moses, except that he gives better and more miraculous bread. Jesus doesn't just give miraculous bread from heaven. He is the miraculous bread from heaven. This is the point that he is making. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that the Father has given into the world for the life of of the world. Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus is the fulfillment of which Moses' bread was only a mere foreshadowing. Jesus isn't a dispenser of God's grace. Jesus is God's grace. Grace, in other words, and here's the point, grace is a person. Grace is Jesus himself. So if you're out swimming at a lake and you uh, begin to drown, perhaps someone there along the shore might grab a life preserver and throw a life preserver out to you. And you grab onto the life preserver and the life preserver in some ways, right, it is the grace that you hang on to that saves you from drowning. 
But imagine, I remember this when I was a little kid, I was swimming in the pool, I was out in the deep end, I couldn't stand, I began to get kind of uh, nervous and I wasn't sure I could stay afloat and my dad walked in and of course he could stand at the bottom, right? The water only came up to his chest and he just grabbed me and he was the life preserver, right? So he himself was the grace that saved me. He didn't throw something to me. He himself came and became the grace. Grace is a person Jesus is teaching. Jesus is saying, I am the grace that God has given. I am the bread that has been given into the world that is for the life of the world. The bread that comes down from heaven that gives life to the world is not a thing. It's not a substance. It's not some spiritual power, but it's a person. It's Jesus. And this is why we often say that Christianity is a relationship because you can't get the grace of God independent of a personal relationship with the Son of God. If you want all the bounty of God's goodness to be poured into your life, then you need the person of Jesus Christ. Not just because He is the only one who gives grace, but because He is the grace that is given. Jesus makes explicit the connection of all this to communion in verse 6 53 when he speaks of eating both his body and his blood. So he kind of brings it all full circle. And to eat his flesh and to drink his blood is to have, Jesus says, life within yourself. We don't have life in ourselves, right? We don't have what it takes in us. We need God, not just because we're sinners, though we certainly need God because we're sinners, but we need God because we're creatures. And Jesus comes with life for the whole world, the life of God for the whole world. And to take him into us is to take into us his life. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are not signifying our consumption of Christian ideas or Christian concepts, nor are we signifying our general commitment to a particular faith, the Christian faith. We are signifying our consumption of Jesus himself, the living Christ. He is the great reminder. Communion is the great reminder that we are one with Jesus, the person, not merely Jesus, the concept. We must take him into ourselves, not just his ideals and his priorities, but him. Communion is the great sign that reminds us of our oneness with the person of Jesus. And maybe that's something that you need to be reminded of this morning. Maybe you've lost sight a bit of the personal nature of Christianity, the relational nature of Christianity. Perhaps you've fallen into a habit of thinking about your Christianity or your faith as more of a religious, ethical system, a particular way of living, Perhaps for you, the Christ of Christianity has faded far into the distant background. I think this can happen to all of us. I know that it can happen for me, even as a pastor and as one who's given my life to uh, uh, ministering the grace of God through Christ to others. Is there's just so many components to the Christian life, so many components to ministry, and it's be easy to begin to think about ministry or to think about the Christian life and all the intricate scaffolding that comes with it, that you lose sight of the reason behind it, the person of Jesus Christ. 
I remember there's a point where I was in my life, this was probably about four or five years ago, and I was thinking about just all of the kind of the, the theological worldview that kind of undergirded the Christian faith and that made sense of the Christian faith. But I remember thinking as the, as the kind of the, the clarity of all that was like very evident to me. I remember thinking there needs to be a person at the top of all of that. Like, I, I don't need to connect with just the ideals of Christianity and the wisdom of Christianity and the logic of Christianity and the meaning of Christianity. I need to connect with the person who gives birth to all of this, with Jesus himself. Loyalty to a system or a way of life will not be enough over the long haul. You cannot live your life as a Christian loyal only to a cause. We need to live our lives to have sustaining uh, obedience. We need to live our lives with loyalty to the person of Jesus. Every time we take communion, it's a reminder that our hope, our loyalty, our devotion is to a person, to the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, the next time we gather together for communion... Let it be a reminder to you that your hope lies in your personal relationship with Jesus. There is a life to be lived, to be sure, but it all flows out of the personal intimacy that we have with Jesus. And communion is a reminder, an invitation back into this connecting with the person of Jesus. Start there and then you can work your way out to the rest of your life. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you've only ever looked at Jesus as a teacher, a philosopher, a sage, a leader of a way of life, a system of thought, a founder of a religion. It's perhaps never even occurred to you that you could or should know him personally, that it's even possible to know him personally. Perhaps you've thought of becoming a Christian like you've thought of joining a political party. It's, it's joining a cause, but there's no one single person that you would know personally in that. That's not what the Christian faith is like. The Christian faith invites us into the cause through the person of Jesus Christ. And we start off our lives as Christians by meeting the founder of all of it, the one who is himself the bread of life that God has given down into the world for the life of the world. Christianity is not devotion to or even trust in a religious system. It is devotion to and trust in a living person. If you seek the goodness of the Christian faith, if you want to know more about the goodness of the Christian faith, if you want to explore the goodness of the Christian faith, then let me encourage you to seek after the living person of Jesus, the living resurrected person. This was the whole point of celebrating Easter last week. Jesus is alive and able to be known. It is crazy, actually. I mean, let's just call it what it is. But what we're saying is that this man came from God, was here 2,000 years ago, crucified, died, resurrected, and is living now in such a way that human beings can know him. And that in knowing him, his resurrection power is unleashed into our lives. 
And that all the life that comes out of, all that we think of as living as a Christian, comes out of knowing this living person, Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you, if you want to be a Christian, that's where you start. You start with the person of Jesus Christ and his invitation to be known, to reach out to him, to seek him, and to know him. There's a lot more one can say, one should say about communion. I don't pretend to know exactly how all of this works. We've been having a long conversation with the staff about communion and exploring a lot of the theological questions. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned from the example that we see in Exodus 16 about why the Israelites called the bread from heaven manna. They named it a question. Maybe that's a bit of what I say every time I come to the communion table. It's a question. It's, it's a miracle. It's not fully known. The Israelites didn't understand the manna. That's why they called it manna. But they knew it was from God. They knew they needed it, and they received it, and they ate it. And maybe that's all that God asks of us when we come to the communion table. To receive communion in faith is a great sign that God reminds us that his grace is unmerited, his grace is necessary for the whole of our lives, and that his grace is a person, Jesus Christ. So when we come together again, next time we celebrate communion, let's remember those things, but let's remember what communion teaches us, not just in the moment of communion, but for the whole of our lives. God loves us. He cares for us. He's supplying for us all that we need through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. The grace whose name is Jesus Christ, who is the bread that has come down from heaven, that is the life of the world. The grace that we need just as human beings, even apart from our sin, but the grace that we need especially because of our brokenness and our sin. God, help us to find our way fully to you. And Lord, would you use communion in our lives in the coming uh, months, uh, throughout the remainder of our wilderness uh, journey and sojourning. Use communion in our lives to remind us of you and your grace, its unmerited nature, and the sufficiency of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.